Thursday was deadline day for Apple to file its petition with the Supreme Court, appealing a series of rulings that found the Cupertino, California company had violated antitrust laws and conspired with publishers to fix ebook prices. Welcome to Copyright Clearance Center's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. The Apple lawyers made it under the wire and now await word from the nation's highest court on the merits of their argument. Their brief asserts the company's behavior was only natural for a disruptive entry into a new market. Other dynamic businesses, they say, would have done much the same thing. With more details and on-the-spot analysis and all the week's news and book publishing, Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly senior writer, joins me now from New York City. Welcome back, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. Well, good afternoon to you. Oh, good morning, as the case may be for our listeners. And we'll be getting to Apple in just a moment. But first, we want to have a timely feature. No, not something for Halloween, but for the end of the year and all the gift giving that is so uh, so much a habit with us in this country. And at the end of the year, we often think about best books. And Publishers Weekly has done a lot of thinking for us already on that. Tell us more. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, the Halloween costumes are out and Thanksgiving plans are being made and in some cases broken. Uh, And the Christmas season is right around the corner. And that, of course, means best books. And the PW Best Books issue is now out. It's always one of our biggest and best read features. And for good reason, because it's about great books. And really, what's better than a great book? So uh, a little background for listeners on the PW Best Books feature. You know, PW reviews about 9,000 books each year. Uh, That's between our print and our online channels. And yes, as you might imagine, that makes choosing the best books a pretty enormous undertaking by our editors, many of whom I have to say looking around the office look like zombies, and that's not because they're dressed up for Halloween. It's because they've been reading furiously for the last month. I should add as well that when we say best books, um, these really are our editors' choices. Uh, We realize that books are not sports, so we're not saying that there are any winners and losers here. But these are the books that really stood out to our editors in 2015. Uh, So there are two lists. There's the top 10, and there's also a long list of 100 best adult titles. And the list spans several categories, including fiction and nonfiction. There's poetry, uh, mysteries and thrillers, uh, sci-fi and fantasy. There's horror, romance, erotica, comics, uh, lifestyle, religion, you name it. And there's also a list of 50 titles in picture books, middle grade, and young adult as well. Uh, and these are from big publishers and small indies alike. And from the adult long list, we then go ahead and pick an overall top 10, which includes uh, five each of the best fiction and non fiction titles. Uh, And as I said, that feature is now out. It's up on the PW site today. And I would encourage listeners to go uh, check out the entire list. Uh, Give us a comment on the site. Let us know what you've read, what you've liked, or what you might add to the list and get reading. And I'd say get shopping too. Did I mention that the the holidays are right around the corner? Well, you did mention it. So did I, actually. (laughs) I guess guess it's really beginning to sink in that the summer is over. Um, We won't spoil the fun here, so we won't go into all the 100 titles that you've chosen, but share with us some highlights. They really are a, a rainbow selection. 
Yeah, really is. And, you know, our cover author this year is the poet, essayist, and critic Maggie Nelson. She's penned what our editors called a mind-blowing, gender-bending memoir called The Argonauts, uh, which was a unanimous favorite among the editors. Uh, also at the top of the list is Between the World and Me, Ta-Nehisi Coates' moving, insightful treatise on the legacy of American racism is told uh, in the form of a letter to his young son. Uh, and this is a title that I think you'll be hearing more about next month here in New York City, it's been nominated for a National Book Award, and to my mind, it's got to be the favorite to win. Uh, what really strikes me about the list, too, you mentioned a rainbow. It really is a very diverse list, and the top ten includes three translated works, including uh, Elena Ferrante's The Story of the Lost Child, which was written in Italian, uh, Empirism by Christian Kroc, uh, which was translated from German, and Beauty is a Wound, uh, which was trans which is by uh, Ika Kurnawayan, which is translated from the Indonesian. Uh, so three, you know, really good translations in there too. There's also some well-established authors on the list, uh, most notably the book Crow Fair, Thomas McGuane's 16th book, and our editors say arguably his best. All right. Well, from the best new books, we have to turn our attention to a lot of old forgotten books, the books that Google scanned in its so-called library project. And two weeks ago, Judge Pierre Laval ruled that Google scanning was fair use. He sort of upheld an earlier ruling, of course, by Judge Denny Chen. And this week, you've got a piece looking at how that ruling may ripple out into other related scanning cases, most notably the case over e-reserves at Georgia State University. Yeah, that's right. You know, there's been a lot written in the last two weeks about what this Google decision means for authors and publishers. And of course, the Authors Guild, who has said that it's going to appeal its case to the Supreme Court. But I think, you know, for me, the short answer is that this Google decision really doesn't mean all that much at this point. Uh, you know, we're still talking about a trove of books that are out of print and are really limited commercially. Uh, and in terms of the fair use aspect of the ruling, sure, it's absolutely a victory for libraries who may be involved in digitization projects, but I have a somewhat different view as to how important it is because, let's face it, Google's scanning project here was an extraordinary effort, and no one is likely to ever undertake a book digitization project on this scale or like this uh, ever again. I think this was pretty much a one-time shot. Yet in his written opinion in the Google case, uh, Judge Pierre Laval, who is considered by many to be the nation's foremost jurist on fair use matters, uh, included a lot of observations that really could come into play in other fair use cases, most notably and most immediately the Georgia State University E-Reserves case, which we've talked about quite a bit on the show in the past. Now, our listeners will recall the GSU E-Reserves case was first filed back in 2008 by three academic publishers, and they accused administrators at Georgia State University of systematically encouraging faculty members to offer these digitized, unlicensed copies of selected readings, known as e-reserves, as a low-cost alternative to licensed course packs. In 2012, Judge Arinda Evans ruled against the publishers. She found that these uses were actually fair use. But that case is now back with her after the 11th Circuit reversed her last October and instructed her to rebalance her four-factor fair use analysis. Now, in a remand brief this summer, the publishers argued that the 11th Circuit's ruling compels Judge Evans to now be primarily concerned with the effect of GSU's copying on the publisher's business. And that's because the use of unlicensed copies threatens the publisher's incentive to publish, they say. Uh, and in this recent Google Books opinion, Judge Laval actually bolstered the publisher's point of view. 
and a section of his opinion that was explaining why Google's commercial aims don't preclude the company from claiming fair use, Laval, in a very pointed footnote, observed that there's likewise no reason to presume that a nonprofit educational purpose always qualifies as fair use. And then he went a step further, and this had to be music to the publisher's ears, and I'll quote, Authors who write for educational purposes and publishers who invest substantial funds to publish educational materials would lose the ability to earn revenues if users were permitted to copy the materials freely merely because such copying was in the service of a nonprofit educational mission. The publication of educational materials, he concluded, would be substantially curtailed if such publications could be freely copied for nonprofit educational purposes. So as I said, welcome words for the publisher in the GSU case, especially coming from a jurist like Pierre Laval, who, as I said, was, was widely considered the nation's uh, leading fair use expert. Well, as you say, certainly welcome words for publishers and for authors. And do you think they spell trouble for GSU? You know, not necessarily, because, you know, that observation is as pointed as it is, and it almost seems to be directed at GSU, uh, is really not controversial. I think it's worth noting that both the district court and an appeals court have also upheld GSU's contention that use in nonprofit teaching favors a finding of fair use under the first factor of the four-factor fair use test. But this is where things get kind of sticky, because the courts have also acknowledged that a greater threat of market substitution occurs when when a use is non-transformative. And GSU uh, attorneys conceded a long time ago that the uses in their case are not transformative. Now, transformative, legally speaking, means, for example, in the Google case, the scans there were transformative because they were used to enable full-text searching and indexing. But in the GSU case, the copies in question are used for the same purpose as the originals. They're there to be read by students. Uh, and this is what Judge Evans is going to largely be focused on when she rebalances her fair use analysis in the GSU case, does the market harm claim by publishers, which is the fourth factor here, merit significantly more weight in the overall fair use determination than the educational benefits claimed under the first fair use factor? The publishers uh, obviously say yes. And in his footnote, I have to wonder if uh, Judge Laval may have just put a finger on Evans's fair use scale. Uh, but you can check out my column in Monday's issue for more on that. Uh, suffice it to say, the actual practices adjudicated in the Google case case, I think, are not really as significant as some have been writing, because the era of book scanning, I think, is pretty much over, certainly book scanning on the level that Google was doing it. But for practices like e-reserves, which are common everyday things on college campuses, uh, that's of real interest to, to me. And I really want to see um, how some of the observations in Judge Laval's you know, extraordinary Google decision might ripple out into our everyday application of fair use. Well, it certainly is an evolving part of copyright law, and appreciate that analysis from you. Another area that we may see the law evolve, at least if Apple has their way, is in its uh, appeal, its potential appeal, I should say, to the Supreme Court in the ebook price fixing case. We had a development this week, as I alluded to in the introduction, and Apple met a deadline for filing that appeal to the Supremes. That's right. So Apple is now taking its case officially to the Supreme Court. Uh, on late Wednesday, uh, Wednesday evening, they f officially filed their uh, petition for a writ of certiorari to the Supreme Court, asking them to review Judge Coates' decision. Uh, now, we talked about this a month ago. Uh, we did a piece in PW wondering if the court was actually going to take the case. Um, so we knew that Apple was going to file this. Uh, and basically, their argument is exactly as uh, we had presented uh, 30 days ago, and that's that Judge Coates erred 
court and finding that Apple was liable for a per se case of price fixing. Now, a per se case is uh, a case where the restraint on competition is just deemed to be so outside the law that you don't even take in other market factors, such as whether or not Apple enabled new entrants into the ebook market. Now, it's, what's really going to be interesting, I think, here is whether or not the government files a brief in opposition. They now have 30 days to do so, or if they just kind of let it go. Personally, I don't know if they will file a brief. I think they will. But to me, it's still 50-50 whether the court takes the case or not. As the legal experts have told me, this is a case that really rests on the facts. And the facts in the case largely point to Apple having orchestrated a horizontal conspiracy. And uh, both Judge Cote and uh, two members of the appeals court have held that that is per se illegal. So we will see what happens next for Apple, but we are on to the Supreme Court. Indeed, and and nine very important opinions there. But yours is always the most important to me. Andrew Albany, senior (laughs) writer for Publishers Weekly. Thanks for joining us, as you always do on Friday for Beyond the Book. My pleasure, as always. Beyond the Book is produced by Copyright Clearance Center, a global rights broker for the world's most sought-after materials, including millions of books and e-books, journals, newspapers, magazines, and blogs, as well as images, movies, and television shows. You can follow Beyond the Book on Twitter, find us on Facebook, and subscribe to the free podcast series on iTunes or at our website, beyondthebook.com. Our engineer and co-producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. My name is Christopher Keneally. For all of us at Copyright Clearance Center, thanks for listening to Beyond the Book. Mm-hmm.